Oh my goodness, podcast family. If I give you three words, these words should strike fear into you. Now, they strike fear into me, just like two other words do. That's shoulder dystocia, because uh, I've seen it, and it just, it's good to have a healthy, that's the key word, (laughs) a, a healthy, not a paralyzing fear, all right? The three words are intrapartum, uterine rupture. I mean, let's be honest, it is catastrophic and we want to recognize it as soon as we can. And sometimes we don't even recognize it until we're in the OR. We're like, oh, well, that explains that. So uterine rupture, yes, it's okay to be afraid of this thing because it's a healthy fear and we should respect it. Look, I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm afraid of it, and I'm okay with that fear. I think it keeps us on our toes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I'm afraid, all right? You want to hear me say it? You want to break me down? All right, I'm afraid. For the first time in my life, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, too. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. There is. For me, there is. Why, you're human, aren't you? Be afraid. Be very afraid. See, that's the catch, right? Is be afraid, but use it, channel it, control it to make good evidence-based decisions. When you're paralyzed by fear, then you're no good to anybody. So it's all right to be afraid of things. It keeps you humble. It keeps you honest. Look, every time I go into a repeat C-section where she's had like six previous ones, which happens in our population, yeah, I'm like totally nervous. I mean, I'm like, my palms get a little wet. My stomach gets a little queasy because I'm like, ugh, I don't know what's in there. And I just don't want to hurt anybody. I think, and I've been out 23 years, guys. I think it's okay to have that. I think being too uh, novice and cavalier and not afraid of anything is kind of weird. Maybe it's a personality psychopathic disorder. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding, guys. Not really. Um, but I think it, I think you should be afraid of things. I think that just keeps you humble and on your toes. The truth is, is a ruptured uterus is a totally catastrophic and terrifying event. And we've got to be on the lookout for this. Of course, we're talking about a complete disruption of the myometrial layer of the myometrial wall that typically happens intrapartum, but not always. It can happen antepartum without labor. We're going to talk about that in this episode. Now, we've all memorized the usual red flags and contraindications to labor, like prior classical cesarean, multiple or more than two low transverse C-sections, prior transmural gynecological surgery, or grand multiparity. We get that. Those are classic. Don't let them labor because they're at risk of uterine rupture. But in the absence of previous gynecological surgery or in the absence of multiparity or any other risk factor, uterine rupture can go unnoticed and this results in delayed diagnosis with considerable morbidity and mortality. Uterine rupture intrapartum has also been reported in prima paris patients without gynecological surgery. We're going to talk about it in this episode. Although it's more likely to go unrecognized and underreported, the proposed incidence of rupture in the unscarred uterus varies widely in the literature from anywhere from less than 0.01 to 0.8%. I mean, it depends on who you read. And we're going to talk about these numbers in a minute. All right, so do you hear that? I mean, 0.01% uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus? I mean, super rare, right? 
Hold on, it's rare until it happens to you. We've had it our, at our institution. One of our podcast family members uh, submitted a, a, a comment to us that this has happened. We're not going to say any names just for confidentiality. But this is out there and you've got to keep your mind and your eyes open for this. The, uh, our patient, it happened in an, it was Nola Paris, had a severe D cell, went to the back. And you're like, oh, that's a uterine rupture uh, and no prior history. So here's the catch, guys. Listen to this clinical pearl as we're in the intro. Now that that repeat C-sections, that when they undergo TOLAC, we've got clear guidance on that, right? Everyone's on the alert. Everybody knows what to do and what's on the watch. And we get out uh, of harm's way before it becomes a real problem, the majority of cases. Yes, uterine ruptures happen with TOLACs, with VBACs. Absolutely, they, they do. Uh, but that number has been going down historically over the last 20 years, which means that what's been masked underneath that, what's been covered by those numbers, which is the uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus that always fell into the shadows of the uterine rupture with a previous scarred uterus, uh, those numbers with the unscarred uteri are now rising. Does that make sense? It's like, look, let's, let's rate, relate it to the HPV and cervical cancer issue. As cervical cancers now go down because of increased screening and better detection and better algorithms, right? We now see the rise in what? In in anal uh, HPV, in oropharyngeal HPV and oropharyngeal cancers. Those are like, oh, those are going up. Well, are they really going up or they're just going up in relation to the decreasing number of cervical malignancies? Was the same thing here? As uterine rupture, because of previous C-sections are steadily going down, then the uterine rupture in the unscarred uteri, that ratio is, is, is changing because those seem to be going up for, for, for those two main reasons. One is the proportion is, is changing, and second has to do with the increased frequency of women getting old, uh, pregnant older in life, which brings with it two potential other gen diagnoses. Wow. And we're going to get into that because I learned a lot with this. It was eye opening. It's 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 a like a light bulb moment because remember, we've said this in previous episodes, what happens in gynecology, it's not like in another building department down the road and then they get pregnant. You're like, oh, now you're in a new building because that's obstetrics. It's the same patient. So things that live in gynecology show up in obstetrics. How many times have we said that? We've said that with our PCOS episodes. We're like, hey, if you're insulin resistant when you're not pregnant and have PCOS, uh, when you do get pregnant with PCOS, do you think your insulin resistance is going to go away? No, (laughs) it's there at baseline and potentially could get worse. So gynecology affects pregnancy, obstetrics. And in this case, there's two specific gynecological diagnoses, guys, and it's not PCOS. Two two gen conditions that have been published here and now recognized by ASRM as being risk factors for uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus. Wow. I mean, I, I mean I'm telling you, we've got to cover this because there's a lot of things we take for granted. Like, ah, she's laboring. She's a prima gravita. She'll be fine. We've got to ask ourselves and her, what does your history look like? Did you try for 10 years and then you finally got pregnant? (laughs) Had you been told you had this gynecological diagnosis or this one? Because these are things that we've got to document putting on our radar. It's not high on our radar, but somewhere on the radar has to be there the possibility of uterine rupture. 
All right, everyone, we're going to talk about all of this. I'm kind of excited because there's a lot of good data here uh, and recent stuff that I'm going to present, recent stuff uh, in, the, in the last year and two years that have really called attention to this uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus. All right, everyone, let's get to this. We're, we're going to cover new data, even from the Green Journal in 2023 that was released in April. Okay, so April uh, to now, what are we talking about? That's like seven months. Uh, and so seven months ago, there's a, a fantastic review from the Green Journal that we're going to highlight also in this episode. So let's talk about uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is kind of bizarre that this did happen to us. Not recently. I think it was last year or so in our unit. Uh, and then you know, this Facebook um, message came in from one of our podcast family members. I'm like, man, this this is a thing. And, and, and again, it was on the radar from the editors and the publishers of the Green Journal because April 2023, and we're going to talk about this in more detail in a minute, uh, did, did a fantastic uh, re- uh, a, a recent review of the data uh, recovering this issue. We're talking about April 2023, guys, so within this year. And and it's just eye-opening, again, what's out there. Now, before we get into a lot of that data, uh, let's just say it right now, just so we can just knock it out, that the, the biggest symptom related to this is is a change in the fetal heart rate tracing, right? Typically, uh, uh, either uh, bradycardia, which is the most common, or brady, and then a reflex. Ironically, tachycardia as a baby tries to find some blood, uh, some blood flow, okay? So the, the most common symptom here, guys, uh, across all of the data that we've looked at is fetal heart rate abnormalities. It may, it may or may not have pain because it could have an epidural. It may or may not be uh, changes in the togodynamometer or IUPC, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. Uh, the, but the number one issue here has to that we have to keep our eye out for is weird and severe changes in the fetal heart rate tracing okay so you go ah oh, i'm not even messing with this i'm not trying to resuscitate this i see this i recognize her history I, I, i'm thinking maybe uterine rupture and we're going to do something about it that is totally okay and again we're going to talk about those two recent uh, gynecological uh, red flags that have now been noted to increase the risk of uterine rupture even without previous uterine surgery but I found that interesting that April 2023 in the Green Journal, uh, this was uh, the subject of, of a published review. Yep, we've all been taught that uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus is super rare. Uh, yeah, okay, it, it's rare, but it does happen. Now, uterine rupture as a whole is overall rare, but that data from April 2023 really was surprising because it showed that, listen to this, guys, here's a clinical pearl. 
up to 23%, that's 23, 23% occurred in that review without a history of prior uterine surgery. 23%, guys. Now, because that's closer to 25, let's just round it up, say 25. So that means one out of four, one out of four uterine intrapartum ruptures in this review that we're going to get into a little bit more detail in just a minute happened without a history of uterine rupture. That's remarkable. From the beginning, let me just give you the overall gestalt, all right, from the published literature of some considerable and understandable risk factors for intrapartum uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus, okay? So first, process that. Hmm, what would a uterus without a previous uterine incision, what would put them at risk of rupture? So think about it, think about it, because you know these already, and they seem to be true in the literature. All right, so what do you all think? What do you think some of those traditional and understandable risk factors, even in the unscarred uterus, would be to have intrapartum rupture? Well, prolonged labor with a contracted pelvis. Yeah, that's that's a thing. Congenital uterine anomalies. Sure, that raises the risk. Fetal malpresentation. Yep, that's in the data. Prolonged uterine stimulation with a bandle band. Yep. And remember, we talked about bandle band formation in a previous episode. Go back and listen to that. And something that we have also covered in the past, which I've already mentioned in the intro, are two gynecological conditions. Remember, what lives in gin doesn't just stay in gin or in gyne from the Northeast. In the South, we say gin, like like the liquor. It's OB gin, but in the Northeast, it's OB gyne, which I guess is technically correct because we don't say gynecology, it's gynecology. And once again, I have totally diverted. So there's two gynecological conditions that are linked to uterine rupture, guys, even without surgery. Mind-blowing. So here it is, adenomyosis and its sister, endometriosis. Adeno and endo, adeno and endo. Those two, which coexist in a lot of patients, uh, and they're hard to separate in some of the data, both of those have been linked independently and, and together have been linked to an increased rate of uterine rupture intrapartum. Man, there's a lot of data. I'm telling you. So let me stop here for a minute. Just pump the brakes. Uh, when I had this Facebook communication uh, through the messenger, which now, by the way, here's a, again this, the same plug. Let's start using my Instagram because I'm leaving Facebook at some point. Uh, because I think well, there's a variety of things. Uh, but anyway, if you're going to communicate with me, I'm still figuring out the IG world. So send me a message on Instagram. I think you can send messages on Instagram. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Uh, so we'll, we'll try to communicate with that. Of course, I still have the Facebook page for the podcast if we have to. But when when this provider you know, sent me the message like, hey, man, there's something going on here. Uh, this patient ruptured with uh, it, it, without a previous gin surgery. What is up? Of course, that is all my interpretation because it was nothing like that. It was much more proper than what I'm saying now. Uh, and I said, hey, wh- wh- did you ask about endo? Does this patient have endo or adeno? And this provider responded back, you know, no formal diagnosis, but I'll tell you what's interesting. This patient did have an ovarian cyst that kind of looked like an endometrioma. So, again, not proven, but but there's in that one particular 
case, that patient seemed to have that suspicion of endo. So endo and adeno definitely are both, both independent and uh, uh, as, a un- as a unit, both risk factors for uterine rupture intrapartum and antepartum as well. Wild. Now, um, we can get into why that would be the case. And, and it actually makes a lot more sense for adenomyosis than just endometriosis without surgical resection involving the uterus. But, and, and I'll give you that, that structural explanation and inflammatory explanation in a minute, but that's basically the two reasons. But these two things have been always, and they repeated in the literature, repeated in the literature as two gynecological conditions that make their way into obstetrics and increase the risk of uterine rupture. Now, I'm going to give you the odds ratios here in a minute. Now, remember, guys, this there's no huge database of this. There's no RCTs on this because they're all sporadic. Most of these are small cohort or through uh, a database searches and queries because, remember, uterine rupture, number one as a whole, is just kind of rare, thankfully, although it definitely happens. And, and, and I'll give you those percentages, uh, both in the scarred and unscarred uterus in a minute. But then if you take the unscarred, which was, in historically much more rare than the one with the scarred uterus it's just not very common so these are little these are peppering in the marks within the literature all right and through case reports but i found three very unique case reports that that had this interesting association between endo slash adeno and uterine rupture intrapartum without previous surgery right so one report was by van de Pute, that was in 1999 Villa also published a separate report in 2008. That title was Uterine Rupture in a Prima Gravida with Adenomyosis Recently Subjected to Laparoscopic Resection of Rectovaginal Endometriosis, a case report, end quote. So this patient did have surgery, but it wasn't even uterine surgery. It was resection of the uterosacrals. Uh, and again, just having both adeno and endo by themselves increases the risk, and I'll tell you that data in a minute, but having surgery, which implies probably worse disease, because it actually went to the OR, increases it even more. So again, this is how these case reports go. And then there was a, a another case report uh, that was published uh, by Chester et al. in 2015. So again, those are just three case reports that I found fascinating. Of course, I'll put those references in our reference list. That second one where the patient had the uh, uterosacral resection and then had the uterine rupture, again, in a prima gravida, that was published in JMIG, right, Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology. And interesting that, again, it was in JMIG because the patient had minimally invasive gen surgery, although they described uterine rupture uh, uh, as an obstetrical issue. So it's just something very interesting. And again, those references will be in our page. Before I give you the proposed theory of how endo and adeno lead to an increased risk of rupture, just look at this abstract from JMIG on that case, okay, by, uh, by, by Villa et al. And again, remember, this was uterine rupture, prima gravida with adeno recently subjected to laparoscopic resection of rectovaginal endometriosis, a case report. So it was rectovaginal um, with a uterosacral component, but remember, not even uterine itself. But the abstract reads, quote, a case of intrapartum complete low posterior wall 
transverse uterine rupture complicated by uterine atony and treated by emergency hysterectomy in a primogravida with uterine adeno who delivered vaginally at 37 weeks plus 5 days of gestation, 9 months after undergoing laparoscopic resection of rectovaginal septum endometriosis, end quote. Um, what? I mean, <laughs> did y'all get that? Is that wild or what? So first of all, this wasn't a stat section. She delivered vaginally, but because she decompensated it uh, with the delivery, the, the, obviously they went in, they're like, oh my gosh, it's a posterior wall blowout. Now, did you see here where all this was? Low posterior wall transverse uterine rupture. So not like a vertical up and down on the corpus, transverse. Wow. Primogravida and did not even have uterine surgery. It was kind of uterosacral and rectovaginal endo. So can y'all get this? Man. So this is why, especially at intake, guys. So come on, when, when a patient comes in, and they go, I've had infertility. I've had endometriosis for 10 years. I finally got pregnant. Oh, that's fascinating. That's great. Bing, 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 bing. I mean, like, bell should be going off. Oh, my gosh. Endo, chronic inflammatory state. Uh, endo by itself is linked to preterm birth, uh, PPROM, PROM, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes because of the chronic inflammatory milieu and the possibility of uterine rupture. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily change anything that you do, but it's about the awareness, guys. That's why we're doing this episode. Be aware. And if somebody ever asks you, hey, can your uterus rupture intrapartum without a uterine scar? You don't go, no, that's dumb. No. Like we recently had on another episode. <laughs> Remember, I was asked to peer review uh, uh, for a friend of mine uh, in another location. Uh, it was a, a patient who it was their first child, uh, went for a section and said, man, there's like this morbidly uh, attached placenta. I think it's like an accreta at the fundus. Uh, and you know, she had a little bit of blood loss and it was a uterine inversion. Anyway, that physician, my friend, responded correctly, diagnosed it well, but said, hey, I think this was an accreta at the fundus in, in this first time pregnant patient. And the pushback from from their peers at that location was like, that's not a thing. You don't get accretas in the fundus. And there was no prior uterine surgery, that, like a C-section. So that can't be right. Yes, it was actually right. I mean, the placenta that was sent off had muscle fibers, myometrial fibers embedded within it. Uh, and I read the entire opno. I'm like, man, it's it was the non-previa accreta. That's a thing. So the just like in and that is a thing, uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus is a thing. And adeno and endo are two possible flags here, guys. So as women delay childbearing until the you know a little bit later on in life, because that's, that's the way that the world is working, uh and, and as adeno and endo both have increased in diagnosis, some of that's because of increased awareness, and some of that's because of an increase in prevalence, um, then then those two things may be colliding to give this this increased risk. Now, thankfully, it is rare. I mean, it's not 1% because that's about the rate of a of a tolac rupture after a 1C section, you know, based on who you read anywhere from, you know, 0.3 to to 0.8 or 0.9%. Um and this is much lower than that. 
but but it put it on your radar. So when you first ask somebody to come in for an intake, especially for these endo uh, for these infertility patients, if they have adeno or endo, put it on their flag, put it on their on their chart. So when they come into labor and delivery, hey, this is an infertility patient uh, with a history of endo, just to put it on the radar. In women with endometriosis, we know that there's functional and structural abnormalities in the inner myometrium called the junctional zone, all right? This is not a theory. You can see this on MRI scans and through biopsies. That means that endometriosis, which is related to adenomyosis, are are myometrial slash endometrial junctional zone diseases, okay? that's th- This is the issue here, is that what starts at that junction between the myometrium and the endometrium uh, and then progresses inward through the wall, that's where you get internal endometriosis, a.k.a. adeno, and then if, if it's obviously external onto the serosa, uh, that's uh, endometriotic implants. But but here's how this thing works, especially at the junctional zone. It, it, starting at the junctional zone, that leads to a defective transformation of the spiral arteries, and that can affect placentation. That's why you get this altered placental function uh, and health, which leads to the increased risk of preeclampsia, FGR, preterm labor, even abruption. All of those things have been linked to altered uh, placentation with endo and adeno, okay? So what happens in gin or or in gyne goes over to obstetrics. And it's also theorized that these inflammatory implants, by by changing the inflammatory milieu, causes weakness within the the myometrial wall. So you have true physical-slash-structural changes and inflammatory changes that affect wall integrity. Now, if you think about this, where does most endo happen? Where does adeno typically happen? In the posterior wall, right? Remember, you do a transvaginal ultrasound, 2D, and on sagittal view, it's kind of the, the light bulb appearance of the uterus, and then you usually have an asymmetric wall thickening. And which wall is typically thick, thickened, the anterior or the posterior? I mean, the anterior could be thickened, but traditionally, it's the posterior wall with shadowing, right? You get that shadow from the from the ultrasound. The posterior wall is typically more affected with adeno and endo. So where do most of these ruptures happen? Not like with a TOLAC along the uterine incision in the anterior lower uterine segment. These are typically either lateral or posterior wall blowouts. So if this happened in the posterior wall in a patient without a previous uterine incision, it's something to consider. Possibly adeno or endo had a factor here, had a role. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is fascinating medical science. I mean, it... It's one thing for it to happen and go, well, I don't know, man. I mean, shit happens. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just what are you going to do? And some of that happens. You can do everything right. And stuff just happens. That's called malocurrences. And as Dr. Levino and Dr. Cunningham, the historic authors of Williams Obstetrics, uh, used to say malocurrence doesn't mean malpractice. You can do everything right. And stuff still goes south. Um but but now if we can now that we have some idea of pathophysiology and be on the alert and put these things on our radar, that's a patient win. I mean, we can take a look at these signs or symptoms early in a patient with the appropriate history and perhaps act faster. Okay, and I'll give you some of those signs or symptoms that we've already alluded to 
like fetal heart rate abnormalities in just a minute. But this correlation between endometriosis with and without previous gin surgery did make its way into the ASRM published review that came out in Fertility Sterility in 2017. That publication is titled Obstetrical Complications of Endometriosis, Particularly Deep Endometriosis. Again, this is a nice review from ASRM in 2017. Now, in this review, those authors stated and noted, according to the literature, here it is, guys, here's a clinical pearl, a 2 odds ratio for uterine rupture in patients with a history of endometriosis. Did did y'all get that? 2.7. Now, it's not 10. It's not 20. But man, 2.7? Is that surprising or what? Because it surprised me. So if you ever asked, uh, somebody tried to get you with the gotcha question, well, what is the odds that a patient with endo or adeno would have this? Well, it's 2.7. Now, thankfully, that's 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 big, but thankfully, because the, the baseline is relatively low, 2.7 is still, the absolute number is still very low. That's why you have to know the relative risk and the baseline absolute numbers, all right? But still, 2.7 above base is, is, is something that we should not ignore. In our search of the data, we also found a published case report that described an unprovoked uterine rupture in a primogravida that had IVF. Now, did you get that unprovoked, which means not stimulated, okay? This pregnancy wasn't even intrapartum. Uh, I'm sorry, the pregnancy. <laughs> of course, the, the pregnancy wasn't intrapartum. I mean, the rupture wasn't intrapartum. The pregnancy was in the uterus. I don't know what I was trying to say there. So it was unprovoked at 32 weeks in a prima gravita who had undergone IVF. All right. Do y'all process that? Uh, And there was a transverse fetal lie. There was an anterior placenta previa. So already you're like, man, you see like, hey, I've got infertility. I go, oh, I did IVF. I got pregnant. And everyone's all right. That's a win. It is a win. We should celebrate that. Man, it comes with issues. I mean, there's stuff, increased risk of abnormal placentation, yada, yada, in this case, transverse fetal lie. But but you know what was the cause of this IVF? It was adenomyosis. At least it was suspected adeno based on clinical signs, symptoms, how the ultrasound looked, because adenomyosis is, you know, a pathology diagnosis when you take out the uterus. But but in this case, she had a a a presumed adenomyosis based on history, and she did have a known history of severe endometriosis because she had previous laparoscopic surgery for that. So what did she have? Adeno and endo. Adeno and endo. Man, something there. So the authors stated, quote, since this patient was not in labor and had an unscarred uterus, this was a rare complication that we encountered, end quote. Yeah, but it's still terrifying. Is that freaky or what? So no previous surgery, no transmural surgery at all. And that makes the point that adeno and endo, it just leads to weird stuff, man. And that uterus, this was published February of this year, guys. Yeah, February of 2023 in the Bulletin of the National Research Center through Springer Open Access. Yes, I'll post that, of course, on our reference list. But February 2023, in National Research Center through Springer Open Access. And the title is, as we've already discussed, quote, spontaneous antenatal uterine rupture in a prima paris patient with placenta previa. Does previous laparoscopic treatment of endometriosis increase the risk? End quote. Now, let me just answer that quickly. 
endometriosis and adeno by itself increases the risk. Surgery increases it even more. Why? It's not that the surgery does something. It's that surgery typically would imply what? Worsening disease. So they go to the OR. Not necessarily because they dug something out of the uterus as a resection. All right. So the fact that you have adeno and endo by itself is a flag. If you had surgery, raises that flag even higher into the sky. Then infertility and sterility reports in 2020, we found another telling review. The title of this review is Resection of Deep Infiltrating Endometriosis Could Be a Risk Factor for Uterine Rupture, a case series with review of the literature. Now, this reported data found seven young women who underwent laparoscopic resection of deeply infiltrating endo. See, again, there's the same thing. It's endo. And they went to surgery because obviously they had failed other things and probably more severe disease. In this case, it was deeply infiltrating. And six of those seven had uterine rupture before or during labor. I'm just reading exactly as it states, okay? The seventh patient had a, guys, listen to this, posterior wall defect that placed her at increased risk of future uterine rupture. Now, that that placental wall defect, that was an incidental find. So all to say here is six had a uterine rupture either before or during labor, and the seventh one was found to have a, a, a weird lower uterine segment in the back of the uterus that was like, man, this thing was about to pop, okay? So again, fertility and sterility reports, 2020, describing seven women, all who had undergone laparoscopic resection of DIE, deeply infiltrating endo, six had uterine ruptures, and one was one that missed the bullet, you all see what I'm trying to say here? So when you're asked, well, what are the typical risk factors? Yeah, we get that contracted pelvis, fetal malpresentation, uterine anomaly, maybe some connective tissue disorder uh, that's been proposed as well. Uh, and so all of those make sense. Bandle band, yes. But as common as those are, two gynecological issues, which are just as common or more, uh, endo and adeno cannot be ignored. Hmm, seems like I'm kind of beating this thing down to the ground and it and it needs to. We have to we have to understand this data because it's not just ASRM, it's not some case reports. Man, this thing repeats in the literature. Trust me. In 2017 in ACTA, which is Obstetrics and Gynecology Scandinavia, authors published a study titled Again, it, it repeats, quote, endometriosis increases the risk of obstetrical and neonatal complications, quote. Well, there you go. This was a national cohort, including all deliveries that women and their newborns uh, had records for uh, in Denmark, spanning from 1997 to 2014. It's a long time. Now, this was, again, a, a, a mining data mining set. They looked at the Danish Health Registrar at, at birth certificates and took a look at the data and looked for uh, patients with endometriosis who had undergone gynecological surgery before pregnancy, okay? So it's 
that that was part of the sub-analysis. So overall, they looked at all of the data, looking at endo by itself, and then the sub-analysis for those who had undergone gin surgery before pregnancy. Now, looking just at uterine rupture, because they also looked at things like PROM and abnormal placentation, which we've already discussed. But our topic here is uterine rupture. Well, they found the same thing. Again, out of the Danish database, they found that women with endo had an increased risk of uterine rupture. And they gave the exact same explanations that we've already covered. Now, they also stated that there could be this weak uh, increase in the rate of stillbirth, but that was n- not very clear. And, and it was an odds ratio uh, that was under two. So I think it was like 1.7. So yes, there's something there, but but that was a weaker association than it was to PROM, abnormal placentation, and uterine rupture. So we've covered ASRM. We've covered the Danish database review. We've covered some case reports um, and even some recent publications like we just stated. But th- this has been looked at for a while now. There was a large retrospective, again, population-based uh, report that came out in 1994. And of course, I'll give that reference as well, uh, out of Dublin. Okay, And it looked at the exact same thing that we're talking about here, rates of uterine rupture that happened either anti or intrapartum. And this 1994 study was over a 10-year period, and that was published in the European Journal of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Biology. The first author uh, was Gardell, okay? And yeah, they're like, hey, uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus is super rare. They said, ah, it's super rare. It's like 0.003. That's 0.003. And they're like, yeah, I probably wouldn't worry about that. Um, wait a minute, Uh, that's the lowest ratio that I've seen because others have said, yeah, it's rare, but it's not that rare. Uh, And it could be uh, some of the way that they they did this data mining, all right? Because, and again, just to be clear, they were looking at all cases of uterine rupture, not just in the unscarred uterus. And they, they did not include, which they shouldn't, they did not include asymptomatic scarred dehiscences because those, those should be excluded. That's not what we're talking about. The uterine dehiscence is something totally different. It's typically not catastrophic as compared to a true uterine rupture, all right? Uh, but it's interesting because they said, yeah, this is, yeah, in the unscarred uterus, ah, one in 30,000, 0.003%. But we have newer estimates. Remember, that was 1994 and, you know, with better uh, ways to look at the data and and account for changes like the report from April 2023 from the Green Journal that we're going to talk about in just a minute. We we have different uh, uh, percents and different uh, prevalence ratios, okay? Now, yes, it's not common, but it's definitely not that rare of 0.003%. Now, it's interesting. Keep that number in mind, all right? Remember, 1994, out of Dublin, 0.003%. It was one per 30,000 having uterine rupture in the unscarred uterus, either anti or intrapartum, okay? Now, I say remember that because this new publication that came out uh, in April 2023 in the Green Journal Uh, that took a look at the exact same thing with the title being Outcomes of Uterine Rupture in the Setting of the Unscarred Compared with the Scarred Uterus, right? exactly what we're talking about. This was published under the the category in the Green Journal Research Letters. 
they they gave a, a a percentage that is similar but off by a magnitude. <laughs> All right. So remember, 1994, the authors said, ah, I don't know, super rare, unscarred uterus, 0.003%. But according to this review that was published uh, in the Green Journal, and oddly enough, also, or ironically enough, also out of Ireland, okay, uh, another retrospective cohort observational study, very similar to the 1994 one, and this one was over a 20-year period, all right? So 1994 was 10 years, this one is 20 year. Short of it is, they said the rate of overall uterine rupture uh, was 0.03%, right? So that's a big difference from 0.003%, so it was 0.03%. Again, do you all get what I'm saying, guys? It's not 1%, it's not 3%, thank the Lord. I mean, that would be be terrifying, but but it's not zero. So all in context, I'm not trying to frighten anybody, but I'm just saying be on the lookout. We've had one at our institution. Somebody in our podcast family uh, had one as well. Be on the lookout for this, all right? But here is, is the other surprising part of that publication from April 2023 that we talked about in the intro, okay? So listen to this. 76% of patients with uterine rupture had a documented uterine scar. Duh, okay, makes sense. Okay, 76%, so what? That's three out of four, which leaves that 23% that we mentioned in the intro having no documented previous uterine surgery. Do y'all see that? So one out of four guys is big. I think that's big. I hope you do too. One out of four. I mean, if you bought an airline ticket, they're like, thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. One out of four chance this plane going down. You're like, I'm out of here. I'm taking, I'm taking the car. One out of four is a lot. So 23%, not a small number. As you would expect, the related morbidity has to do with fetal or perinatal mortality, has to do with PPH and need for hysterectomy, all right? Now, if you read this review, it's interesting because they also describe that ruptures in the non-scarred uterus, some of those were posterior wall. Do you see how things are starting to repeat here? Is that interesting or what? I think we're talking about the same thing, adeno and endo here in these cases. And this is also referenced in this publication. So, uh, and and as also expected, an interesting little uh, dink that they found was that in those that rupture de novo, not in a scar, all right, in a scarred area, those that rupture in, in a native wall obviously bleed more. I mean, they're, they busted through a wall that that had some structural integrity issues, but no previous scar. Remember, scarring is less vascular. So those that had a rupture through a a failed tolac um, and ruptured through the hysterotomy, previous hysterotomy, they have bleeding, but they actually bleed less, right? Think about the dehiscences that we find in surgery. They're not really bleeding. Those are asymptomatic. So, and the reason that bleeding is less in a rupture with a previous uterine incision, aka previous C-section, is because it's avascular compared to blowing out the posterior wall of the uterus that has full blood supply, actually more blood supply, because if, of, of the adeno and endo and their inflammatory response. I, I don't want to be freaking people out, all right? Because especially if your family member has adeno or endo and then they're, they're trying to get pregnant, I don't want you to think that this is absolutely in their, in their cards. Because remember, guys, it is rare. 
So let's just say what it is. Remember, in this publication from the Green Journal in April 2023, overall rate of rupture was 0.03%. That's really good. Um, and again, and they, what they even say is, well, it's probably so low because they're so on top of, of watching TOLAX, okay, that they get out before that's an issue. So yeah, really good, 0.03%. I mean, that's much higher than than the risk happening with um with a with a scarred uterus right because the the typical uh rate according to the college that we should uh, counsel patients that hey you've had one up to two c-sections the risk of rupture is 0.2 percent maybe up to one percent at max uh with a previous low transverse cesarean section up to two all right but in the unscarred uterus, we're talking about anywhere from 0.01 to 0.03 based on, on all of the rest of the data that we've put together. Uh, so it, it's fine, guys. It, it, it Encourage your infertility patients to, to get pregnant if that's what they want to do. Let's not blow this up out of proportion. My point is just to, to realize that this can be an issue. Now that we're getting ready to close, what are some take-home messages? Number one, can this happen in an unscarred uterus? Yeah. Can it happen in a NOLIP? Yeah. Can it happen even before labor? Yup. So just put it on your radar. In April of 2022, researchers published a case report and literature review on the same subject, just like others have done. And this one was published in Case Reports in Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Medicine. And the case report that they, re- that they published, uh, l- listen to this. They describe a 21-year-old G2 P1 who was admitted in latent labor. Okay, so not a Nola Paris patient. She's a G2 P1. Fine. But Pitocin was started, uh, fetal heart tone tracing was category one at first, and then boom, episode of bradycardia. Then there was uterine tachycystole, it ended up resolving, they turned off the pit, and they're like, okay, well, let's keep going, will it continue for a little bit longer? And then recurrent deep variables, recurrent lates, cervix was fully dilated, they tried to push, but there was this prolonged horrible D-cell, and they're like, we're out, let's get out. They did a C-section, and guess what they found? Remember, no previous uterine surgery. They found a posterior wall blowout. Y'all see this? So all again, guys, this is this is repetitive. The same thing, same thing. There was also a poster that was presented at the National Health uh, Services (NHS) uh, out of Wales uh, that showed a almost almost an exact cookie cutter report uh, in another part of the world. All right, everyone. Now that we're getting ready to to wrap this up, let me just give you some. Some not so helpful info and some helpful info, and I'll explain that in a minute as to what to look for here. Number one, uh, not helpful. It's been published uh, looking at at uterine contraction patterns that have been linked to uterine rupture, whether it's scarred or not. Okay, just uterine contraction patterns, and the reason I say it's not very helpful because every kind of uterine pattern has been associated with uterine rupture. So that's not really helpful. I mean, it's been tachycystole, which makes sense. It's been hypotonic labor, which also makes sense. And no change from baseline. Well, damn. I mean, so basically it can happen with any kind of contraction pattern. That's totally been published. uh, And that was published by Vlemnix et al. And that was published in 2017 in Archives Gynecology and Obstetrics who looked at uterine contraction patterns associated with uterine rupture. And they're like, pretty much anything. So that didn't help so much. However, the the most sensitive sign here, guys, not specific, but the most sensitive sign in general for uterine rupture 
is the baby is the vital sign, right? The baby will tell you. So fetal heart rate changes remain the most common clinical manifestation of uterine rupture. I read that as a direct quote uh, from one of these publications, okay? Things like loss of station, abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, and changes in contraction pattern can also happen, but abnormal big drops in fetal heart rate and or bradycardia, especially with the reflex tacky as it's trying to get blood flow back or deep recurrent variables or lates. Remember, lates are not supposed to be deep. Lates are those little seagulls, just kind of little dips, little little ice cream scoops out of the baseline. But if they get, if they're late and symmetric and deep, that's a flag. So deep D cells slash brady, um, especially in a patient with a history of, of adeno or endo, I would pretty much just get out. As we bring this to a close, do you know that in our time together that we have reviewed 14 publications? How about that? With the most recent being April 2023. Uh, yeah, I mean, we love what we do, guys, and we're, we like to take the time to do this. But in this time that, you've spent, that we spent together, we've all read 14 publications-ish because we've just summarized 14 different pieces of literature. Is that cool or what? So when I say it takes up a lot of time to do this and we go through each, not just the abstract, we go through the entire uh, article and go, is this worth keeping? Yes, is this this jive with the others or is this going to some other opposite direction uh, to have a unified message? Um, Anyway, I thought that was pretty interesting. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. So can uterine rupture happen in the unscarred uterus? Yep, absolutely. Can it happen in a prima gravita? Yes. And it can even happen when you're not in labor. Yeah, let that haunt your dreams. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.